Welcome to the Mark Steiner Show here on The Real News. I'm Mark Steiner. It's great to have you all with us. Now, this episode, we're taking an in-depth look at what's happening in Brazil and across Latin America, where we see the right wing attempting to seize control of these nations. Now, we just saw the violence that ensued in Brasilia, but the right wing attacking the halls of government, attempting to overthrow the elected government of Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, who is properly known as Lula. It failed this time. What happens next? And President Lula is prosecuting those involved and those who supported them. And then we just saw in Peru that the right wing and industrialists did oust the rightfully elected prime minister, Alberto Otorola, and dozens of people have been gunned down in the streets. And this is emblematic of what's happening across the continent. The divide is deep in Latin America, as it is in the United States and across the globe. So today we'll explore in depth the struggle in Brazil and across Latin America. And also, as importantly, what it portends for the entire continent, what it says about the struggles to come in the United States and across the globe. Now, this broadcast is part of both our series, my series, The Rise on the Right, and our collaboration with NACLA, the North American Congress on Latin America. We're joined by Michael Fox, who's a freelance journalist, former editor of NACLA, and host of the podcast Brazil on Fire. That's a joint production of NACLA and The Real News. And Camila Escalante, who is co-founder and editor of Kausuchin News. She co-hosts the English-language weekly podcast at that news entitled Latin America Review and is the Latin American correspondent for Press TV. And Camilla and Mike, welcome. Good to have you both with us here on the Mark Steiner Show at The Real News. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. And, and let me add that uh, Mike is joining us from uh, Oaxaca, which means I don't like him anymore since I'm not in Oaxaca. <laughs> and Camilla joins us. <laughs> and Camilla joins us from Sao Paulo, which I'd also like to be in, but I'm here in Baltimore, which is fine. Um, but Mike, let me just begin looking at Brazil and, and, and talking about what happened and why in the attack on the, on the government offices in Brasilia, which seemed pretty massive. So talk a bit of the background of why it happened and what that divide is like and why the divide is so deep in Brazil. And then Camilla, I really, uh, I'll join you. I want you to join in on that um, as we start this conversation. Mike? Yeah, so, I mean, January 8th was uh, a January 6th copycat uh, attack, invasion on, on, on the Brazilian Congress, right? Where you had thousands of Bolsonaro supporters that bust to Brasilia, they pushed their way onto the Esplanade, which is like the Capitol Mall in Brasilia. They invaded the government buildings, the Capitol, the Supreme Court, the Presidential Palace. S security forces, uh, by and large, allowed them to walk in. And it was only a, a couple hours later that, that Lula responded, because uh, he was actually in Sao Paulo visiting people who had been impacted by big rains out there. And he imposed an, a federal intervention into the military, into the security forces in Brasilia. Uh, so he brought them under control. And then within minutes, you know, within minutes, the, the police had already moved people out of those presidential buildings. But of course, the buildings were just, were just wrecked. They were just ransacked. Uh, and the videos over social media are just, are just uh, shocking. Uh, you know, what led to this? I mean, there's there's a lot of background here, but of course, Lula da Silva's victory, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva's victory on October 30th, he wins the elections, beats now former President Bolsonaro by roughly 2%. Uh, he comes into power. Bolsonaro was silent almost the entire time, but Bolsonaro supporters had been holding rallies uh, outside of military barracks, calling for the military to intervene. And, you know, I'm hoping that maybe Camila can, can talk a little bit more about that, because I know that she was at some of those rallies firsthand. Um, but so they held these rallies. And for them, 
you know, this was a fraudulent election. It was like this, the Steve Bannon campaign. This is what Bolsonaro had been talking about. Oh, the, the electronic voting machines for, for years following off Trump. And, and, and Mark, it's really important to understand the connection to the United States. Like, it was basically, let's just do whatever Trump did uh, and let's just implant that on Brazil. And regardless if it's not going to work, what we want to do is create chaos. But the goal was really, of course, Lula came, he was inaugurated on January 1st. Uh, he came to power. Power, super exciting, brings people in uh, like never before, 200,000 people in the streets uh, cheering for his inauguration. Uh, and then obviously one week later, this is what we saw. But these people are, are, are A, convinced that Bolsonaro is still the president, B, convinced that Lula should never have won and there was some sort of fraudulent election, even though the voting machines in Brazil have been certified for, you know, Brazil has one of the best voting systems in the world. They've been using electronic voting machines for something like 20 years. And in fact, Bolsonaro, every other election he's ever won has been on these same machines. So it's just ridiculous to think there was actually some sort of a fraud thing. But the people wanted the military to rise up. And this is what Bolsonaro had been telling them for a long time. Bolsonaro had been pushing, uh, attacking the other democratic institutions of the government throughout his government. Uh, and so, so he really instigated all this. Uh, and this is what we saw on, on, on January 8th, just, just just a, a, a terrifying attack on, on Brazil's institutions and this really scary parallel with the United States, which I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit. We are getting into that. Camilla? Well, one of the arguments the right in Brazil and even people outside of Brazil are trying to make to try to delegitimize the claims or the actions of the government now is trying to suggest that perhaps some of what Mike has described is actually spontaneous, that it was spontaneous that a bunch of people who are kind of opposed to Lula and his government and who believe there might have been some sort of electoral fraud stormed the esplanade, but there was nothing spontaneous about it, and that's what the investigations are showing. They've thus far picked up somebody in Rio de Janeiro in this investigation period who financed some of these acts. They're also aware of the people who financed the buses that brought people in mm -hmm. from around the country. This is very much a planned event because they brought people from as far as the south of Brazil. Brasilia is nowhere near the south of Brazil. By bus, it actually takes days to arrive uh, from the, the southern states, south of where I am now. And also, um, you know, a number of people, uh, you know, thousands of people around the country, including in Brasilia, as Mike mentioned, have been protesting outside of those military barracks demanding that intervention for months now and saying that they were going to carry out such an attack. So a lot of different things have taken place that make it very clear that this is something that was going to uh, that was going to unfold at one point or another. We just didn't know when it was going to take place. And so, you know, this is a completely uh, ridiculous claim that's being made that it was some sort of uh, organic movement. And they're trying to they're trying to compare it to, you know, in other countries where there is actually some sort of lack of democracy and people have to rise up against some sort of illegitimate electoral system. That's not the case here. I've read some things about the the um, involvement of Bolsonaro's son and Steve Bannon here in the United States. W what do we know about that? Is this just um, propaganda or is it real? What's what's the root of that? Who would like to pick up on that first? Go ahead, Mike. And 
I'll go ahead and take it, Mark. Yeah, please. Yeah, so they have a long they have a long history. Eduardo Bolsonaro, who's a congressman's son of Bolsonaro, uh, has known Steve Bannon since at least 2018. He tweeted out in in the lead up to Bolsonaro's presidential run in 2018 that Steve Bannon was had agreed to kind of help them pro bono on the campaign. He's now actually the head of Steve Bannon's The Movement, you know, his international far right group for Latin America. Uh, Eduardo de Bolsonaro is, and they've been in contact ever since. In fact, Eduardo de Bolsonaro was in the United States on January 6, 2021, with Trump allies, the day of the Capitol invasion in the United States. Uh, and of course, Steve Bannon has hmm. been continuing to push his his whole uh, you know fraud campaign even after Bolsonaro kind of stopped talking about it earlier this year. Steve Bannon on his podcast continued to talk about how oh the the voting machines are are all rigged in Brazil and and if and if it's a fair election then Bolsonaro is going to win. He's been saying that after every single one of these of these elections that we saw you know the the, the first two rounds this year uh, and continues to say he's calls the, the people freedom fighters. So the connection between Steve Bannon uh, and the Bolsonaros is is fair fairly tight. In fact, I was speaking with uh, a foreign relations professor just a few months ago in, in southern Brazil, in Santa Catarina, and she was talking about how the far right organizes, uh, how they use tactics and strategies in one place, share those same tactics and strategies in order to help spread and foment the same thing. And that's what we're seeing in Brazil. You know, the idea that uh, that this could have been anything other than uh, an actual idea. You know, we're going to just copy what happened in the U.S. because that's going to inspire people to turn out into the streets. It's going to inspire and mobilize Bolsonaro supporters. And, and Mark, the U.S. connection is really key here because Brazilians, by and large, look to the United States, historically, look to the United States as, as, as the U.S., as like our, you know, the, the, the great big, big brother, and particularly the far right and the right. And that's how come Bolsonaro's connection to Trump, I mean, he's the Trump of the tropics. He's tried to do everything that Trump said. And in fact, if you think about it, his first two years in office, when Trump was still in power, he visited the United States four times to meet with Trump. Uh, he's now in Florida. He went to Florida two days before Lula's inauguration. That's where he is right now. He's in Orlando. Uh, many people said he was going to Mar-a-Lago. He's actually in Orlando at the moment. But the connections between Steve Bannon uh, and the Bolsonaro is his key. And it's important to understand that the connection between the far right in the United States and Brazil is key. And also, we need to look at the evangelical movement. The, the growth of the evangelical movement in the United States uh, has been really important to help kind of foment and push Trump. And it's the exact same thing we've seen in Brazil. So let me pick up on that. I mean, you're sure Bolsonaro is not just going to Disneyland? <laughs> we have not seen pictures of him in Disneyland yet, but we Just have checking. seen pictures of him playing, I mean, playing I, virtual reality I, video games, though. We, we, we I have heard seen that, that in the last couple of I have of heard that, that Mickey Mouse is on the right, so I just wanted to check to see. Anyway, so in all seriousness, um, uh, you know, Camilla, I mean, I, I, I'd like to really explore here, pick up on what Mike said in terms of the root of what is happening in Brazil and beyond Brazil even. I mean, if you look at the United States... We know here that that um, a lot is based on race, the history of enslavement, the genocide of, of, of indigenous people, but also the roots of our democracy, while they can inspire the world and many people, are also rooted in that kind of racist, elitist world. And so the United States battles that too, like the world does. So I'm, it's talked a bit about Brazil and what you've seen there, maybe even other places, but what the root of this divide is, why it's so deep in places like Brazil. Well, I think that right-wing ideological alignment with the U.S. 
right or far right and Trump and Bannon is very uh, key to understanding things, but I don't think uh, it's going to take us very far in terms of what the government's trying to do right now to prosecute people. There were actual material authors who financed things from here, and those people might be uh, elites, economic elites from certain sectors. And so what the divide really is in this country is not necessarily that everyone is just running around being racist and anti-Indigenous just flat out for the sake of it, but it really is a divide between the rural peasantry, the Indigenous people who have traditionally uh, been the caretakers of the land, and those who want to displace them and take their land. It's about the productive means. It is a battle over taking over these large pieces of land, and that's largely why, of course, social movements here have fought for the democratization of land, fought for access to land, to be able to make that land productive so that people can have the right to have somewhere to live, somewhere to grow and produce, and um, and obviously to not be displaced and be homeless and to be able to produce food, not only for the people of Brazil, but for to be able to export and do other things to economically prosper. And that's really what it is. In Latin America, what we're largely seeing is not just a culture war that is, uh, you know, black people versus uh, the, the wealthy whites, just simply on the basis of race. It is a fight for land and resources. It's either transnational uh, interests that are seeking access to uh, those areas in order to exploit the natural resources versus the people who want to have sovereignty over the natural resources, sovereignty over the land, and to be able to put those um, into use and make them productive for their own, uh, for their own the sake. And that's extremely relevant here in Brazil. In Brazil, there's obviously a la large landowning class. There are agribusiness interests. There are those who seek uh, to further their illegal logging, illegal mining, and of course, the deforestation of the Amazon. And it's highly uh, probable that some of the people in these different uh, sectors are financing and participating in the financing and organizing of these acts of terror or this fascist activity, however you want to characterize it, and not solely these foreign interests, because there are plenty of uh, people of the financial elite here in this country who have a lot of reasons to attack the sitting government. So I, I do want to come back to this this part of our conversation, but I, I want to switch gears just for a minute because I'm very curious about what I read in the last few days. And I'm curious what is actually happening on a larger scale in, in Latin America with this divide over what happened in Brazil. What I've read is that the leaders of Argentina, Bolivia, Colombia, and Mexico, like Alberto Fernandez, Luis Arce, Gustavo Petro, and, and Obrador, condemn the coup. But Gabriel Boric from Chile and Lula himself said it was unconstitutional. What is that about? I mean, what, why is that divide happening? What does that mean? I mean, you have, especially with Lula um, facing what he's facing. I mean, what, um, what is that political dynamic? And how does that part? I mean, Camilla, you want to jump in first? Or, and then Mike, how, who, however you'd like to go. Well, it might have been either strategic or an error on the part of Lula because he came out and made that statement in which he actually recognized this de facto administration in Peru before he even took office as president here in Brazil. Um, in the case of Gabriel Boric, although he might be recognizing this de facto administration in Peru, he has actually condemned uh, some of the human rights violations that have taken place there. I would say on a whole, 
uh, we're actually seeing more of the Latin American left and progressives actually denounce what's taking place in Peru, denounce the human rights violations and the attacks on democracy, and remark on the fragility of the institutions there, much more than we saw in 2019 during the coup in Bolivia, where there was silence across the board, both from many of the so-called progressives in Latin America and throughout uh, the, the larger community the larger community being Europe and North America, North America, because they're the ones who usually put out these statements when things take place in Latin America. And so I would actually say that given the statements that were put out by uh, this collection of countries, Mexico, Bolivia, Argentina, Gustavo Petro and Colombia, that they're actually beginning to look at what's going on and denounce what's going on because they want to make sure that we don't see another 2019 Bolivia but unfortunately, it's too late. There have already been massacres and grave violations to human rights for which this uh, de facto government needs to be tried, charged, tried, sentenced uh, for the crimes against humanity. That, again, is just a repeat of what we've already seen in recent years in Latin America. Mike? You know, I, I just think that kind of what Camila is also speaking to is this moment of, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, the, the pink tide 2.0, mm -hmm. right? The, the, the possibility of the, the Latin American left countries coming together because now most of the region is now kind of on the left. They're not revolutionary. It's not like what we saw, you know, under the, the, the 21st century socialism of Venezuela and Bolivia and Ecuador, like back 10 or 15 years ago, but it's still exciting. And of course, that's what Lula brings to the table uh, is a, a kind of across the board, the hope of, of creating these new regional integration groups, which have completely fallen by the wayside or been just gutted and destroyed by the right wing governments that we've seen over the last decade. Uh, and the possibility to be able to move and to organize, to be able to push back against things like what we've seen in Peru or what we saw in Bolivia back in 2019, the possibility to be able to use these regional uh, organizations to defend each country's own sovereignty in ways that we haven't seen in a long time. So I think there's just a, a lot of possibility and a lot of hope for a lot of unity that we haven't seen in a very long time. So let me just pick up what you just said, Mike, real fast before we move on to another subject here um, in our time that we have. Um, I still don't understand, and for the people listening and watching today understand, why would Lula, who now just faced what his government faced in Brasilia with the attack from the right wing, why would he say what happened is constitutional in places like Peru? I mean, what is that political dynamic? What is that, what's the root of that? What is that about? How could that be? So, Mike, just pick up on that and Camilla jump in. I, I just want to get both your different analysis of, of why that could possibly be. Mike? I'll, I'll be completely honest, and, and I think that, that yeah, I, I'll be honest, and I think this is what Camila was speaking to. Uh, we, I, I don't know. Uh, and that's one of the, the biggest questions that Lula has always been very, very focused and very clear about defending each country's sovereignty, defending the leaders in that country, backing, for instance, you know, Venezuela and Cuba and all these other countries in right. moments when, when, when they're being attacked. Uh, and so uh, I don't. I don't have an answer to that at this moment. You know, his whole thing about diplomacy is 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 being able to negotiate across the aisle, but also really, really defending everybody in their own political uh, position and, and their own political place. And so I, I don't know where he's coming from at that point. Well, Camilla, what does your analytical crystal ball say? <laughs> well, if we look at the timeline of events, uh, what happened in Peru 
with the removal of Pedro Castillo took place about three weeks before Lula's administration. He steps in and said that. It's perhaps because, as Mike suggests, Lula has a big uh, focus on upholding democratic institutions, institutionality, not interfering in uh, the internal affairs of other states. But that being said, I think there's a very large chance that Lula will uh, kind of scoot away from his position and what he had said, and that he might come out and uh, someone from his government, or perhaps not his government, but the Workers' Party might come out and condemn some of what's taking place there and the anti-democratic nature of the crackdown and the repression we're seeing largely against indigenous people in Peru. There are, of course, uh, about six political parties in Peru that are members of the Sao Paulo Forum, and those parties have penned a letter together to President Lula da Silva and to the Workers' Party and the government of Brazil asking for solidarity and asking them to intervene in what's going on right now. They've also asked for help from the UN, uh, the different UN bodies to intervene in the situation. And they think it's particularly important to appeal to Lula because of his influence in the region. So I think it's possible that he might actually uh, sympathize with what's going on there, but he doesn't want to speak too soon. Okay, let, let me move on to two quick subjects here um, before we conclude. I mean, <clears throat> one is, you know, this is... There's a long history here with the United States' involvement. I, not, I don't know how they were involved in either, completely how, in, in, in Peru or Brazil or anywhere else. But, you know, I, re, I remember the days of Operation uh, Condor um, and, and back in the right-wing military dictatorships from Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, Bolivia, Paraguay, Brazil, and Peru and Ecuador all over. I mean, in, in Ecuador, 60,000 leftists were killed. Tens of thousands were arrested and tortured. So... And there's always been there. And I have been covering this and been involved in this on and off over a long time. <laughs> and, so I, I, and so I'm just, so where's the connection here? Is there, is there a thread that connects this? And what does that mean about how the struggle is evolving in, in, throughout Latin America? Um, because the U.S. has been knee deep in overthrowing governments in, in, in part of that and, and that and also fostering the evangelical movements, which have come out of the United States for the most part into Latin America. So, I mean, talk about those connections from that immediate past for the last 50 years and this moment. And, and Camilla, can I start with you? And then Mike, jump in. Yeah, Evo Morales, who is the president of the movement towards socialism and really a leader among indigenous peoples and movements and social movements generally now, has called it Plan... Condor 2.0. Oh. And he said what is happening right now uh, is that, as we as we described earlier, there's obviously a new pink tide. But at the same time, we see a rearticulation and a strengthening of the right-wing movements and parties and the far right in the region in response to this resurgence of the left. But instead of seeing these outright coups and intervention that we saw in earlier decades, such as in 1989, the bombing of Panama City, we're not seeing anything like that anymore. But what we are seeing is the financing and the, quite frankly, the laundering of resources and funding to right-wing parties and to right-wing figures who have a strong presence in a country. So you're not really going to see the United States drop in a lot of troops into the different countries. Perhaps you might see an occupation in a country like Haiti. But when we're talking about countries like uh, South America, in Brazil, in Peru, the U.S. has a very strong presence in terms of its embassies and its ambassadors, but largely what its operations are now is trying to strengthen 
uh, the right-wing parties, which are the opposition parties in countries like Bolivia, like now in Brazil, in Venezuela, and try to get those uh, th- those parties active and strengthening them so that they can uh, carry out their own destabilization and potentially their own coup in a way that looks as if it's something organic, something spontaneous, as what took place in 2019 in Bolivia. We saw waves of so-called protests, but a lot of these protests were through organizations that were receiving funding uh, from Washington and a lot of figures who were not organic well-known figures within Bolivia, but which have attended international forums, which are English speakers, uh, you know, individuals who were leading uh, sort of right-wing movements on social media, um, and who played a part in the coup against Evo Morales, but it's not individuals who are popular enough or have enough strength within the country that they could actually win democratic elections. They have repeatedly, in the last two decades, failed to win elections, and for that reason, they had to take power through a coup. So the conclusion is, I mean, and, and let me go back to Mike Fox for a moment before we do. I mean, so what do you think um, this portends for the future struggles in Latin America, throughout Latin America, between right and left, and the, and, and the kind of the strength of both? Well, I guess, you know, the first thing I wanted to say, uh, and, and just kind of tagging off of Camila, Oh, please. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, is, is, no, no, no. Is, is, is the question of lawfare which I think is really important and we need to understand, which is basically the, uh, the tool of using law as a means of warfare. This is what we saw with Lula, obviously his jailing for 580 days, tanking him and putting him in jail so he could not run in the 2018 elections. If you remember, the, the US DOJ and, and the US FBI were very much involved in that campaign, uh, very much involved in the whole car wash scandal. 17 or 18 different members of the FBI were working with uh, prosecutors within the, the car wash scandal. And it wasn't just Brazil. And that's really key. We saw mm. lawfare used to tank or to try and take out Rafael Correa, Jorge Glass, his, that was the president of Ecuador, obviously, and his vice president. We've seen lawfare being used just recently and within the last month or so with Cristina Kirchner over in Argentina with, with, with a, a, just a scandalous uh, law, lawsuit against her, uh, which is just absolutely ridiculous. And this is what uh, members of Peru were trying to do to to, to, to tank the president and the, the Peruvian president as well. Remember, we saw this in El Salvador. We've just seen this across the board. And it's something, it's, you know, we look, at this point, we don't have the U.S. footprints over everything in every single different country. For instance, we can't say that Christina Kirshner uh, and the lawsuit against her was absolutely tied to the United States. But in many of these countries, it absolutely was. And we know that the Ecuadorian example, because it's tied to um, Brazilian companies and the whole situation with Lula, of course. And so this is, I think, really important to understand, because when we hear the question of corruption or lawsuits against uh, a, a, you know, a, a, a presidential figure, oftentimes it's a left presidential figure, and oftentimes it is the right using the supposed legal means or law as a means to tank uh, that person's A, ability to run or jailing them uh, and, and putting them in jail for trumped up charges. So this is really concerning. It's something we need to be aware of that's happening because it's very easy to then that person gets tainted in the media and then nobody wants to touch them at all. Uh, regarding what this means for the future, again, you know, I, I think it's important to go back and, 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 and talk about this question of 
um, of, of regional integration. The reason why this is so important for Lula and so many other people on the left, UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations, CELAC, that's going to be Lula's first visit. It's going to be to Argentina in just about a week for, for the summit of CELAC. That's the, the, the community of, of, of Latin American Caribbean nations. This is because it's seen as a tool to push back on the United States. It's seen as a tool to push back against cases like what we're seeing and the, 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 the insane violence and the coup that, that, that's happened in Peru. Uh, and for instance, in Bolivia in 2019, these are means, and this is why these regional integration uh, experiences and means were so important back under pink tide, you know, one, you know, back in the 2000s. Because the idea is how do we push back uh, as the United States continues to, to push its interests in the region? Uh, it might be more lukewarm uh, under Biden in the same way that it, it seemed more lukewarm under Obama. But remember, it was under Obama, the U.S. was spying on Brazil and the NSA was spying on Brazil. You know, the U.S. has always seen the rest of Latin America as its backyard and its ability to do anything that it wants to do. In fact, Lopez Obrador, Mexican president, said just a, a couple of weeks ago that he was going to ask um, Biden when he came to visit him to stop uh, the whole Monroe Doctrine of, of seeing Latin America as its backyard because it continues. Mm -hmm. Although, like Camille said so expertly, you know, it's, it's now not in full on invasions by U.S. troops or the Marines. Now it's done more surreptitiously. Although I will say this. The situation in Brazil at this point with the military and with Bolsonaro supporters would have been very, very different if Trump had been in power. It's important to understand that the, the, the role of the U.S. in either encouraging or discouraging coups abroad is really, really key. And of course, the military wasn't going to touch this at all. And that's how come we saw that January 8th did not work whatsoever, because the military and the elites in Brazil just aren't interested in some sort of crazy coup. But if Trump had been in power and willing to throw uh, his support behind Bolsonaro, despite the fact that Bolsonaro was lost, we may have seen a very different scenario. Yeah, that internationalizes the whole issue of the rise of the right, which I think is a critical piece of this. Um, and in closing, Camilla, it, it closes out for us and round it up about where you think this is all going. And, and I think that last thing you said, Mike, is, is, is really important about the internationalization of the right. Camilla? Well, as Mike said, uh, this first CELAC meeting that's going to take place soon in Buenos Aires with the participation of Lula da Silva is going to be very key because it's from this uh, sort of union of Latin America and the Caribbean that discussions are being had about a range of things that, you know, Latin American leaders such as Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro are saying, let's look at alternatives that work for us, that work for Latin American and Caribbean peoples. Let's look at how we can have our own uh, sustainable airlines that work to transport people from Latin America to Asia and to uh, Africa without having to go through Miami. We're looking at alternatives possibly in terms of currency, in terms of trade, in terms of, uh, you know, looking for sustainable alternatives to the sorts of things that, that uh, traditionally have always had to go through the United States, through Europe. And, you know, fortifying and strengthening the relations between the countries of these very regions. Uh, we might see uh, strengthened relations between Lula da Silva and Bolivia, the next door neighbor, and with President Luis Arce. And this is really important because they share a massive border um, in terms of transnational uh, crime. They could be fighting crime uh, together and without the United States. The United States has always wanted to uh, send a bunch of advisors 
uh, and troops and military bases in order to fight uh, so-called transnational criminal organizations and drug trafficking. But this is actually something that the countries of our region can be cooperating on together, working to solve together without the United States intervening and really just making some of these issues worse. Hmm. So will either of you be there? Unfortunately, no. I would love to be there. It's going to be a very important event. (laughs) (laughs) Just checking, just checking, just checking. Well, this this has been a great conversation. I really, uh, I think, uh, I enjoyed this. I think our our viewers and listeners did as well. Um, Mike Fox, it's always good to have you with us uh, as part of Real News. And and Camille Escalante, it's a pleasure meeting you. And I look forward to many more conversations and having you both with us back again. This is great. Uh, Both of you are very impassioned, hardworking journalists, and it's great to have your voices here on the air with us. Thank you both so much. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Mark. And thank you all for joining us today. And please let me know what you thought about what you heard, what you've seen, what you'd like me to cover. Just write to me at mss@therealnews.com, and I will write you right back. And we always need your help to keep the voices of people like Camille Escalante and Mike Fox on the air. So please go to www.therealnews.com forward slash support, become a monthly donor, and become part of the future with us. So for Kevin Grandino and Kayla Rivara and the crew here at The Real News, I'm Mark Steiner. Stay involved, keep listening, and take care.